Good morning. The author, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, writes in Revelation often in the first person, and you'll see that here in this passage, chapter 19, verses 4 to 16. The 24 elders and the living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord, our, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God of Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, stop laughing about that. Um, I, I was about to say I'm going to interrupt this momentous moment, uh, who is Jesus, with uh, um, the opportunity to reiterate an announcement. And it is about the song on Good Friday for the men's chorus. Um, I think we probably got the word out a little bit too late this year, but the, the men's chorus has traditionally for several years in a row uh, sung and can it be it's a special arrangement um, in an all men's choir and if you have not experienced that and you have the ability to sing you're missing something um, it's a real blessing so uh, we would really appreciate it if you would sign up for that um, that's that's the invitation now here's the threat if if you don't sign up John Mangrum is going to join the choir and um and that will not be pretty, I promise you. I love John, but I've heard him sing. And I also know, well, Brian doesn't have a lot of hair left, but if John sang in the men's chorus, it would all be gone. 
I can promise you that. So we don't want that to happen. We do want to sing and can it be. Uh, we don't want John in the choir, so please sign up. Okay, that's uh, the intro. When it comes to um, certain, this is an admission. Don't, don't judge me, okay? I'll, I'll say that up front. When it comes to certain phrases, certain titles, certain images in the Bible, as much as I love the Bible and as dedicated as I am to Jesus Christ, sometimes when I say them, I kind of cringe. Now, if, if you don't, that's fine. You're more righteous than I am. But I have to tell you, one of the ones today that sometimes makes me cringe is when I or someone else uses kingdom language as it relates to Christianity. You say to yourself, Bob, come on. That's part of the tapestry of the Bible. I know it. I'm just being honest. But you know why I think I cringe? Actually, the same reason you might. Not because you don't believe in King Jesus. But if you know anything about history, you know that we have a history of kingship that's not sterling. So one of the images that comes to mind when I think of kingdom and kingship is something like Louis the Fourteenth. Remember Louis the Fourteenth? A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel um, to France, and we visited a variety of places. Well, one of the places we visited was the Palace of Versailles, and, and the gardens there were incredible. The palace was enormous. The inside of the palace, hall of mirrors in one room after another with huge chandeliers that had to cost tens of thousands of dollars today. They were everywhere. The opulence was overwhelming. And so was the history. Because when you walk through those halls, you realize that a self-centered monarch lived there. And while he and his wife lived there and their children, feasting daily, the population outside those gates was starving to death, living in absolute squalor. As a part of our tour, we went to a small peasant village. village. But it wasn't a real peasant village. It was a reconstruction by the king and especially his wife of what a peasant village might look like. And it was inside the walls. And inside those walls, those monarchical children played in peasant village. But peasant village was okay there. 
Everybody had what they needed. And outside, people were starving to death. You know the rest of the story, right? It's called the French Revolution. So, when I hear kingdom language, it's hard for me to get Louis XIV out of my mind. Or maybe if you're a person who doesn't think so much about Louis XIV and, and other totalitarian kings, maybe when you think kingdom and king, you think of our country and you think of the British Empire, which at one time they said never did the sun set on it. And a king in a relatively small island was ruling the world. So when I think of the image of kingdom and kings, sometimes that creeps in and it makes me cringe. Why? Because it's associated, these images, with excess and totalitarian selfishness. On the other hand, when I think of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, even though kingdom language might make me cringe, I think of something entirely different. When I think of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, I, I begin to describe it with this phrase. I think of a reluctant king. You remember when Jesus was on the earth and he went about doing good? On one occasion, he fed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. When it was all over, what happened? For those of you who know the story, you know that after Jesus did that, he recognized that they were going to take him by force to be king. Why not follow a person like that? And what did Jesus do? He slipped away from them and went far away. He repeated over and over again whenever things like that happened, and it didn't just happen once. He would repeat over and over again things like this. My time hasn't come. It's not appropriate. No, I can't be your king that way. Sometimes it's called the messianic secret. It seems like Jesus just told people, don't say anything. I'll heal. I'll go about doing good. And you know I'm introducing the kingdom of God, but don't blow it out of proportion, will you? Keep it quiet. Why? Because his time hadn't yet come. He was a reluctant king. What he was saying, in effect, is you don't understand what I mean by kingdom. What you need to do is let the kingdom play itself out before your eyes, right up to the bitter end. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to serve people. And here's what I'm going to show you. Your king is going to die on a cross. That's the kingdom. But you've got to be quiet about it. Just follow me until the whole story unfolds. So you've got a reluctant king and you have an unusual kingdom. As a matter of fact, if Jesus had an inauguration address like presidents and other people do, you know what it would have been? Probably the Beatitudes. It's at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. 
And Jesus stands and teaches a crowd about the kingdom of God. You remember what he said on Inauguration Day, right? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they would be, will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he got more explicit. He said, if you're a part of my kingdom, I want to tell you something. You're blessed, or ought to consider yourself blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're a part of my kingdom. Whenever they say those things, fight back. Refute them. Go on the attack. No. When they say those things, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's an unusual inauguration, isn't it? Inaugural, inaugural address. True, because it's an unusual kingdom. Jesus also continues to speak about the kingdom, and he, he uses images routinely, parables that describe what the kingdom is about. On one occasion, he used a parable of the weeds, and he basically said the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is, is like that field out there. I mean, fields were all around him. And he said, a farmer is taking care of the field. He's sowing the seed. And then it begins to germinate and grow. And then the people who come to him, who are his helpers, say, there's weeds all in the field. Let's, let's yank them out. And the farmer said, no, no, do, don't do that. Don't do that. If you yank out those weeds, you're going to disturb the plants. You just leave them alone. Because at the end of it all, we'll pull the weeds out at harvest time and the weeds will be destroyed and what we have will be the harvest that's odd advice isn't it seems to be advice that the church historically has not understood on occasion especially medieval Christianity when it was yanking out everything it thought was weeds and even burning some of the weeds at the stake. Really? Jesus also used a parable of the mustard seed. He said, see this tiny little thing? If I had one, you couldn't even see it. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like that. When you plant it in the ground, you can't even hardly see the thing. But it becomes a gigantic tree. Just leave it alone. Just plant the tiny seed in the ground. Just plant the seed, my friends. And I'll take care of the rest. Or another one he used was the parable of the leaven bread or the leaven in the bread. 
tiny little bit of yeast just in the bread, and the bread rises and becomes a big, full loaf. That's the kingdom of heaven, he said. So I want you to step into these kingdom images, Jesus says. This is a kingdom like no other kingdom. As a matter of fact, the Gentiles lord it over people. I'll show you how to be a, a king. I want you to be a servant. I want you to wash people's feet. He also said on one occasion, which I find fascinating, in Luke chapter 17, he said, the kingdom of heaven is really, well, it's invisible. It's not people with crowns. It's not armies marching out. As a matter of fact, near the end, people are going to be saying to you, look, here's the kingdom, and there's the kingdom, and there's a king, and there's a king. And he said, don't believe any of it. Why? Because the kingdom is within you. Really? That's a kingdom? Yeah, the Spirit of God within you. That's the kingdom. It's an unusual kingdom. And the unusual kingdom in the history of the disciples, after all these instructions were heard, it culminated with a crucified monarch. The king died on a cross. The disciples never seemed to be able to understand. As you know, on one occasion, Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus told him he was going to die. And Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Kind of a harsh reprimand for a really loyal disciple. Get behind me, Satan, I have to go to the cross. You might think to yourself, oh, okay, Peter gets it now. Only a few chapters later, depending on which gospel you're in, only a few chapters later, they're in the garden. And when they come to arrest Jesus, which Jesus has already predicted, Peter pulls out his sword and hacks at the priest's servant and cuts off his ear. I think he just missed. He was probably looking for the neck. And Jesus said, put away your sword. Peter still didn't get it. Nor did they. And Jesus was crucified. And then after the crucifixion is over, we know this wonderful resurrection, this, well, this demonstration that Christ is king. And on one occasion, Paul gives us insight. He says, I want to tell you something. You've got to connect the kingdom and the king with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus came into this body, he says in Philippians chapter 2. And he divested himself of all his glory. Think kingship. And he became a servant. And his service went even to death. Death on the cross. But I'll tell you, says Paul, because of that story concerning the kingdom, this king one day is going to have a coronation. And the coronation is going to be this. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It might not seem like it now. It didn't for Paul. He had tiny little churches all over the Roman Empire that were being persecuted daily. But he said, one day, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. And then we come to this passage in Revelation. And there's some stirring, even troubling images 
for 21st century Christians. We see the armies of heaven led by Jesus laying waste the nations. We see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was meek and mild and suffered a crucifixion with a robe, a white robe dipped in blood, a symbol of battle and vengeance. You have no idea how hard it is just to stand here. But maybe it's better. A robe dipped in blood. A warrior. Someone coming to execute justice. And armies behind him. I want you to notice two things. We're not in the army. It's the host of heaven. We're never given responsibility to conquer the earth. Or execute those who are not on God's side. Even though some of that's in our past. We sow the seed and we patiently wait for God to wrap it up in Jesus Christ. Looking at this passage this week, it made me want to preach a series on the book of Revelation. I'm still resisting it. Um, I think I need to do it right about when I'm 65 so that if you kick me out, I'll have Social Security. But no matter, let me just say this about the book of Revelation, okay? Did you notice, did you notice that the whole point of this unbelievable battle by the Lamb of God is not to destroy people who don't believe. It's to destroy the forces of evil, which is Satan himself. That's what the battle's about. Someday he's going to destroy Satan and throw him into a pit. And he's going to renew everything back to the way it ought to be. I have often uh, mentioned a passage in Revelation that I'm only going to refer to, but I'm going to read another. But before I do, I want to suggest what we have here in terms of a practical application for kingdom followers. First, we've got a pattern for living. Follow Jesus. If, if you have any trouble wondering whether or not you or fellow Christians are following Jesus, probably the best way to do it is just to ask this question. Ask is whatever the activity or the attitude. Is that like Jesus? I mean the Jesus I know. Not the one with a robe dipped in blood. That's his job. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. I'm talking about the Jesus that we know. The Jesus that walked this earth. Whatever activity you're involved in, whatever the attitude of your heart, just ask yourself the question, is that like Jesus? Then you'll know the pattern to follow. 
The second practical implication of this kingdom story is a purpose for living. In this kingdom story, you see, we're invited into something. We're we're not supposed to just observe something. We're not supposed to watch Jesus wrap it up. We're invited to enter into the kingdom and in the words of the Lord's Prayer, pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know this trajectory of history, which seems so long, so long, as we await the returning of Jesus Christ to be the ultimate judge and king of this world. This trajectory that we're involved in, we're part of it, my friends. We have a purpose. We've got a purpose to bring the kingdom of God into the world, ourselves. That's our mission. Jesus says, you're ambassadors for me, the king. So bring the kingdom of God to earth. What a wonderful purpose. It's a purpose that can't fail. Because it's the eternal plan of God. We might fail, but the purpose will not. So we have a pattern for living, and we have a purpose for living. And third, we have a promise in the future. And that promise in the future does come especially from the book of Revelation when God through Jesus Christ wraps it up. The passage I've referred to so many times that I think some people could quote it comes from the end of Revelation. And the two chapters are Revelation 21 and 22. And in 21, we hear that eventually everything's going to be made new. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. We're not going to it in the story. It's coming down to us. The kingdom of God is going to descend. And when it descends, the book of Revelation says, God will be with them. God will be their God. They will be his people. When that kingdom comes down, every tear will be wiped from your eye. There will be no more sickness or sorrow or death. Because those former things have been wiped away and everything's going to be made new. Then the writer says, I want you to write down these words because they're true. It's going to happen. That's the promise in the future. But the passage I want to read, um, I just love. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, this new Jerusalem that's come down. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves on the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. There's the picture of the future. There's the kingdom. Until it comes, and it will, we work to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. What a wonderful mission. Are you ready for it on Monday? I hope so. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful picture of your kingdom. Thank you for uh, your kingship, your lordship, that you truly are the king of kings and the lord of lords. And we thank you that your kingdom is unique. It's unusual. It's different. And the citizens of your kingdom are instructed to live a life that's different and unusual and unique. And in the living of your kingdom, your presence is among us. And in the living of your kingdom, in some measure, not completely, but in some measure, heaven comes down to earth. And while we do the work, Lord, of implementing your kingdom here on this earth, we pray that you will not allow us to lose sight and lose hope of the promise that you will finish the job and your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.